Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. It's Halloween, and some of the costumes you'll see this year will be inspired by Squid Game, WandaVision, and Cruella. But you'll definitely know it's 2021 when you see a sexy vaccine costume going by, because if we can't turn it into something sexy, was it really Halloween at all? What are you dressing up as this year? That's what we're asking over on the What She Said Facebook page, so be sure to pop on over after today's show to share what you're wearing this year. Coming up, though, I've done a lot of heartbreaking interviews over the last couple of years, but my interview with Landy Anderson will stick with me for many, many years to come. Seven-year-old Caitlin Sampson was murdered by her two caregivers in their Parkdale apartment 13 years ago, and Landy started a duty-to-report campaign, calling on the provincial government to legislate two of the recommendations from Caitlin Sampson's inquest. You'll definitely want to hear this one and then head on over to sign the petition. Storytelling is a fundamental component of being human. Gayathri Shukla is the founder of Campfire Kinship, a social enterprise providing story-based solutions for individuals and teams to discover their unique strengths and build inclusive cultures. Gayathri joins me to share how leaders can lead more effectively through the power of stories. Anne Brody joins me just in the nick of time as temperatures begin to plummet, and our thoughts turn to cuddling up on the sofa with a good show. Anne shares details on Portraits from a Fire, the documentary The Capote Tapes, the giant ray of optimism that is Dear Future Children, and the wild and wacky The Cleaner out on Britbox now. How many times have you told someone you love to drive safe? As we approach the winter driving season in Canada, Cal Tire is asking who do you drive safely for to get drivers thinking about the importance of safe, reliable tires on your car. Tiffany Moyer, our What She Said tire guru, joins me to share what you need to check to be sure your winter tires are ready. My next interview is here to lighten things up a bit. Comedy Coop is an online comedy school hatched by comedy professionals and offers classes for all levels of experience. From comedy curious beginners who've never been in a comedy class to more experienced students eager to enhance their skills. Co-founder Christelle Bartelzi joins me to share details. Finally, for women business owners, marketing their business during this pandemic has been difficult to say the least. Faced with ongoing hurdles, it can be challenging to share a message that may or may not be relevant in a week. Jordan Danger Stalker, Creative Director and Fractional CMO at Danger Co., joins me to share how she is helping businesses adapt to the new reality. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. This next interview is sensitive, and if there are little ears around as you listen, I encourage you to shut this off and come back to it later. 
Seven-year-old Caitlin Sampson was murdered by her two caregivers in their Parkdale apartment 13 years ago. Paramedics found her lifeless body in a pool of blood covered in 70 wounds. Eight of her ribs had been broken, her teeth had cut through both her lips, and there was a gaping hole in one finger exposing the bone. They found a note on which she'd written 62 times, I am an awful girl, that's why no one wants me. Even more chilling is that she died after months of chronic abuse, which involved the child welfare system. Landy Anderson is a child protection worker in Ontario with over 30 years of child welfare experience. She has started a duty-to-report campaign calling on the provincial government to legislate two duty-to-report recommendations from Caitlin Sampson's inquest. This will help Ontarians understand how to report suspected child abuse and neglect to their local Children's Aid Society and prevent other children from dying. Landy joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Landy. Thank you, Candice, and thank you for having me here. It's my honor to be here. This is such a heart heartbreaking story. I was gutted reading into it, but even more upsetting to me is reading how many recommendations were made um, and how many have been actually um, put into place, which is what zero. You know, that's a great question, Candice, and an uh, uh, you know, and that's an excellent observation. We like we won't know as citizens what recommendations were actually put into place. And uh, even though there were 173 recommendations that were put into place uh, by the jury in 2017, uh, there is no information on the Ministry of the Attorney General website uh, what the outcome of the uh, inquest is. The inquest recommendations, Candace, they're not binding. And uh, it's, it's my understanding that all of the parties involved in the inquest were to submit a report on the progress of their um, of their activities with respect to the 173 uh, inquest recommendations one year after the inquest uh, recommendations were issued uh, by the by our ministry here in Ontario uh, by the coroner. And uh, I've written several times uh, to the ministry of the attorney general uh, in an attempt to see what those progress reports look like and what anybody has done. In fact, uh, two of the 173 recommendations uh, that I've started the duty to report campaign uh, represent less than 1% of, uh, of uh, what the jury saw as a significant problem in her death, in little Caitlin's death, um, because there were so many opportunities for um, the community and for the education and the child welfare system uh, to respond and to protect her. And there was uh, failures uh, right across at every single intersection that little Caitlin uh, had, you know, had these reports uh, been made and had people responded uh, appropriately. Uh, perhaps, you know, we would not be here today talking the voting quest recommendations on a seven-year-old child. Okay, let's talk about duty to report then. What does that look like? So what the duty to report uh, campaign that I've started looks like is that I'm calling on our provincial government, the Ministry of Children, Community and Social Services, to legislate two of these recommendations. Recommendation six is that our ministry fund and carry out a comprehensive ongoing public awareness campaign on the duty to report. And recommendation number eight, that the ministry establish a mandatory annual training program for those professionals 
with a higher responsibility surrounding the duty to report. So most citizens, by and large, don't understand what the duty to report is. It's actually a piece of law in our Child and Youth Family Services Act, Section 125, that compels every citizen in Ontario uh, to make a report on suspected child abuse, that a child might be at risk of harm or is being harmed to their local uh, children's aid society or local Indigenous child and family well-being agency. And so in Ontario, there's 50 of them. And it's very unusual that our province, in comparison to the rest of Canada, operates with 50 different local children's aid societies um, looking after the uh, protection of children. And so I've been meeting with our government, Candice, I've been asking them to uh, have this to be a regulation uh, a regu under Regulation 155 or even 156 of the uh, Child Youth Family Services Act. And I'm meeting with the Assistant Deputy uh, Minister, Mr. David Remington, and he's very polite to accept my meeting request. He's very polite to meet with me, but he's not, that our ministry is not taking any responsibility. I'm asking our ministry to do the right thing. Uh, and that is to legislate these two very simple, uh, they're very easy uh, re recommendations to regulate, that our ministry govern and fund and be responsible to educate Ontarians about what the duty to report is. I don't think that's asking for too much. And I don't think that uh, Caitlin's, I think that 1% uh, of Caitlin's um, inquest recommendations is not asking for too much. And the original inquest has now been, it's been nine years since that wrapped up, correct? Well, when she passed, when, uh, well, she actually passed away uh, in 2008. She was uh, murdered. I shouldn't say passed away. She was murdered in 2008. And the, um, the caregivers that murdered her were actually sentenced in 2012. And then the inquest recommendations happened in 2017. So you're right on that, you know, in terms of the top, the timeline, those are three of the most significant um, timeline pieces of the timeline. But what has, what has anybody done since 2017? Nothing. Because the inquest recommendations are not binding. You know, I just started the campaign this month in, um, you know, uh, in recognition of October, which is Child Abuse Prevention Month. And October is the month that the 50 children's aides across the province should be uh, campaigning and, and educating our communities on what the duty to report is. And I'm sorry, I don't think that the average citizen in Ontario can name uh, Purple Dress, uh, Dress Purple Day. What day is that? You know, and for your uh, listeners, it's October 27th. So, you know, my campaign that I've started on uh, fosterparentsurvival.com, click on the duty to report, sign the petition. I've got close to 500 signatures. I mean, I just started this, you know, two weeks ago and 500 people are now signing this petition. And let's get to 1,000 and then let's get to 2,000 and let's show our government uh, that Caitlin's, uh, the two inquest recommendations are worthy of our government attention to legislate. And so uh, this is my campaign, but I'm just the voice of the community. I represent what the average citizen in Ontario wants. We want to keep kids safe. I don't know anybody that doesn't want to prevent a child from being harmed in life, to grow up healthy and whole and safe. And, uh, you know, the people that are signing my petition, I mean, I, I haven't even, you know, thank you, Kate, uh, you know, thank you, Candice, for having me on, on your show. And I'm sure your listeners uh, will be interested in signing that campaign and, you know, signaling when we stand together, we're stronger. And I would really like our provincial government and the Ministry of uh, Children, Community and Social Services to take this seriously. 
I think that a child's life and saving a child's life through making a report on a potential harm or risk of harm to a child is worthy of, uh, of legislation and education. I'm asking that our government educate the community to stand up and protect kids, do the right thing. This seems like a very, very easy ask. I know my listeners um, will galvanize behind you on this one. We're all sick of these inquests and no action being taken on the recommendations. So if you could one more time um, share the website where people can go, uh, where if they want to find out more and if they would like to sign the petition. The website is fosterparentsurvival.com. Click on the duty to report widget, and uh, and then all you have to do is sign the, sign the petition. It'll take you literally less than a minute to do that. And it's proven, uh, Candice, there's research that proves that uh, there are uh, Canadians in, uh, in this, uh, there are Canadians that with the duty to report education, that it gives them the confidence to make that report. Uh, there's a report in um, Alberta, 450 staff in Alberta's education system. And the number one reason why uh, the staff didn't make the report was because they were worried that it would be an incorrect report. And so the duty to report training gives them the confidence. Please visit fosterparentsurvival.com, click on the duty to report and sign the petition. All right, Landy, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, for people who want more and want to know more, they can also go, also go to whatshesaidtalk.com. Landy has a blog post up, so you can go there to read more about Caitlin and about uh, this inquest and the actions you need to take. And we'll link out to the petition there as well. Landy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Candice. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Storytelling is a fundamental component of being human. From the dawn of time, sharing stories has been what has taught us about our past, given us glimpses in, into our future, all while cementing us firmly in the moment with the person holding our attention. Guy Three Shukla is the founder of Campfire Kinship, a social enterprise providing story-based solutions for individuals and teams to discover their unique strengths and build inclusive cultures. Just like how sharing stories around a campfire can spark a sense of belonging and purpose, Guy3 is now on a mission to unlock empathy in workplaces and communities through narrative. She joins me now to share how campfire kinship is helping leaders create trust in the workplace. Welcome to the show, Guy3. Thank you, Candice. Nice to meet you. Uh, we were talking before we started this interview, and you, you said something really interesting to me is that, you know, COVID actually opened up the world to you. Yes. Yeah, in many ways for me, I, I mean, it's such a terrible tragedy, right? So I don't even like to think of silver linings, but, you know, sometimes we do need to take that moment to appreciate what has um, been possible. And for me, first of all, I'm thankful that, uh, you know, the people I love have stayed healthy. And also, I think for me, it opened the doors in terms of being able to connect with people all around the world that I probably would have never had a chance to meet Um uh, pre-COVID because pre-COVID, as you know, we're meeting people in person for the most part, right? So this has given me such a great uh, opportunity to connect with um, everyone from 
you know, people in Canada to people around the world. So it's been great that way. You mentioned connection there, which is interesting to me because I feel like that's something a lot of people through this field they've lost is that connection um, and that sense of belonging. How does storytelling create that? Yeah, what a great question. Storytelling is, I believe, such a natural way to invoke curiosity about someone and, and their life experiences and their journey, right? And I think that's such a fundamental block that we need to all build in, in our relationships to create connection. Because oftentimes, especially in a business context, we, we're, we're just so focused on the, the outcome or the goal that we're working on from a business standpoint. Uh, yet there's there's the human behind the, the goal, right? And connecting with them in a genuine way, I think stories really enable us to do that. So um, uh, storytelling has been around since humans have been around, but, uh, you know, it still holds that power to help people form those connections and start to build trust and appreciation for each other. So how then can leaders um, start to use storytelling to create that trust with their staff? Great question. I think one of the first things like, that comes to mind for leadership is being able to create sort of um, an authentic connection with people, right? And sharing your story, for example, sharing kind of, you know, how did you get to where you where you did? We, we know what someone's looking at their resume. We know what someone's title is or job is, but why did they make the choices they did? And what were some of the learning a along the way? Were there some big aha moments, some some mistakes that happened along the way, where there are people that helped, you know, you kind of reach the the uh, place that you are or taught you things along the way that you want to share with others. And I think for a leader, by being able to share and articulate those stories with their people, what that does is it allows others to also um, feel open and vulnerable to sharing their learning and, and their mistakes and their journey, right? And their aspirations as well. And so it just creates that natural connection between people. And I think when, you know, I've seen from my personal experience, leaders, when they're able to self-reflect and share their journey, what that does also is that um, in a way makes them more compassionate to be open to hearing from others as well. So it's kind of that foundation for empathy, I'll call it, as to being able to put yourself in someone's shoes, but also being able to be vulnerable yourself so that you can create um, the, the foundation for empathy and, and trust and authenticity. I think over the last 18 months that we are, we're at a bit of a tipping point in our society in, in a good way. Uh, we've seen Black Lives Matter, Every Child Matters. Uh, we've seen some real shifts in the space about embracing diversity and really getting to know each other. Uh, how does storytelling pull in that aspect of things for you and in the training that you do? I totally agree. I think the social justice movements that we've been seeing in the last uh, year and a half, I'll say, has really kind of opened the door for this conversation. And I think storytelling, for me, what I love about it is it actually focuses on the relationship between whether it's an employee and a leader or a team member, colleagues. Um, it, it just focuses on being able to create that space for someone to actually, you know, open up and say, Here's my story. Here's where I've struggled. Here's where some, you know, triumphs that I've had in my in my life or my career or whatever. And it allows them to then um, be able to connect with that person and, and um, build a more inclusive culture. Because I think when it comes to inclusion and diversity, I come, a I come from a corporate background and, and I know the importance of things like 
you know, training, um, like anti-bias training and having a diversity inclusion strategy and having, you know, tracking your numbers and hiring practices and all those things are so important. But at the same time, if you don't have the basics of um, just being able to listen actively, right, to be able to genuinely appreciate someone um, for, or for a job well done, for who they are, and being able to get to know someone at a, a little bit more personal level, what that does through storytelling is it really focuses on the relationship and building trust in that relationship. And then that opens the door for a culture that is more inclusive and that does celebrate diversity because you want to be able to share these stories of you know, people from different backgrounds that may otherwise not be represented in the, in the mainstream, right? And uh, by seeing that, someone else who shares the same background can go, oh, I see a person in this role that I'd never imagined myself to be in, but now I can be what I see, right? I can aspire for that because here's another inspiring person that's being uh, that's in that role that I'm dreaming about. So I think celebrating diversity is such a, a key part to to storytelling. And it's so important that, you know, to, to keep people's attention and to actually learn is to share those stories way more compelling than an employee handbook. So where can people connect with you to find out more about getting involved with Campfire Kinship? Absolutely. On for, You can find out more about my, my work on my website, campfirekinship.com. I also have an Instagram account um, that's campfire underscore kinship where I like to shine a light on the stories of everyday role models. So if anybody is interested at all in having their story featured, I'm happy to do that on my platform. And um, yeah, or you can find me on LinkedIn as well. I have a uh, guy through Shukla and I go by guy through Shukla and I have a page for Camp Kinship. So you can find out more about my services than that. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Halloween, we realize, but I just want to let you know up front that Anne and I are the biggest scaredy cats on earth. We are not covering any horror movies or shows here today, uh, but they're out there if you're looking for them. But Anne, we're chickens, right? Yeah, I don't like gore. There's no reason. There's no reason for this stuff. Yeah, it's one of the things I said to you. I remember when you first started on what she said. I said, you know what? I'm a big chicken, so there's no point asking me to even look at these trailers before we talk about them because I won't do it. And you know what? That's <laughs> had a big influence on me, as a matter of fact. I've started being very quality conscious in terms of, you know, the emotional effects that film have cumulatively on us. So to heck with it. To heck with it. All right. Tell me what we got. Oh, man, what a what a terrific film to open with. Portraits from a Fire from Trevor Mack. And it concerns a young boy. I, I'm guessing he's 13, 14, an Indigenous boy on the reserve out in B.C. He's an aspiring filmmaker. He builds cutout characters of sci-fi people and, and voiceovers them. And he shows them publicly to maybe three people. Now, he is also battling this terrible uh, lack of knowledge about what happened to his mother. She's been appearing to him in visions. So he does a bit of searching and he begins in video diary. Well, a friend that he meets just out in the countryside, uh, just out of the blue, takes a look at the diary and says, this is pure gold. You have to make this into your film. 
and he does, and it, it just takes off. But there's so much going on in this. There's mysticism, uh, spirituality, uh, history, tradition, and there's some great character actors. Sandy Stump, oh my word. He and um, another woman play an elderly couple on the reserve who basically raise him because his father is absent. And of course, his mother's long gone. It is so moving and wonderful. And the boy who stars in it, uh, Willem Lelua, is phenomenal. Just so easy. He's, he's wonderful. You can't take your eyes off him. Yeah, I watched the trailer last night. I have to admit, I was quite drawn to it. Um, let's talk about Capote, too, because I watched the trailer for that. He's really quite a character. Oh, my goodness. He's, he was, he is one of America's leading authors ever. He is so lyrical. He came from the deep poverty South and uh, wound up when he was 19 in New York City working in the New Yorker. And his first novel all flew out at 19, Other Voices, Other Rooms. It's a sensation, especially given the photo of him in the background, lying down on a couch, looking very sensual. So he became a hit overnight, uh, subject of gossip. Well, he was befriended by the rich set. They told him everything about their lives. He was so entertaining, and they entertained him back with all their personal stories. Well, late in life, after he'd have a, had a number of major um, uh, books published, including In Cold Blood, he spilled the beans on these women, on his swans. And there's more information on, the, uh, on my blog. But it ruined him. It absolutely ruined him. So the film is um, compiled tapes of his appearances on TV talk shows, particularly Dick Cavett, uh, off-the-cuff stuff, and his friend shot uh, shots of the black and white ball, the biggest ball that was ever held in New York that was his idea. Just an incredible film. And they describe him as a candy tarantula. <laughs> and that, you know, that sums it up. I've read probably everything he's written that wasn't in a magazine, you know, a book. I've read all his books and he's fascinating and you're also a little afraid of him. So this is a great documentary. Okay. Tell me about Dear Future Children. Very inspiring. Three young women, I would say in their early 20s in Hong Kong, Santiago, Chile and uh, Uganda have taken up the mantle of activism against incredible odds. The girl in Hong Kong took part in the riots last uh, two years ago. She has to live a double life. So she only appears in masks. You know, the movement was squashed, as you know, by the Chinese-run police in Hong Kong. Um, but she's, she keeps fighting. She keeps fighting any way she can. The girl in Africa single-handedly goes around and cleans out the rivers of incredible amounts of plastic bottles. And she was actually invited to speak in, a, in an international conference on climate change. And it's her passion in life. I mean, you really believe in the future, thanks to these kids. And the girl in Santiago, she, she goes in demonstrations. She's an activist against the um, government that was set in place by the late Pinochet. Uh, they're still under a repressive regime there. And she fights back. This is incredibly inspiring, and I urge people to watch it, young and old, because the young people, it's up to you now. This is true. This is true. We are um, out of time, though. We don't have a lot of time left. We have like 20 seconds. So you want people to check out The Cleaner. Uh, 
the cleaner box. Excellent. So that's <laughs> on what she said, talk.com, along with a whole bunch of other shows and movies people can catch, including a film festival. Yes, uh, the 29th annual Rendezvous with Madness Hybrid, which means you can get it across Canada, looks at mental health issues. Incredible lineup. Oh, huge. Again. Yeah. Yeah, huge topic. So, all right, Anne, thanks so much for joining me. We'll see you again next week. See you next week, Candace. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. How many times have you told someone you've loved to drive safe? If you're a mom to new drivers like I am, I'm betting you say it a lot. As we approach the winter driving season in Canada, Cal Tire is asking, who do you drive safely for to get drivers thinking about the importance of safe, reliable tires on your car? Tiffany Moyer, store manager at Cal Tire in Waterloo and our What She Said Tire Guru is joining me today to discuss getting your car ready for Canada's harshest season. Welcome back to the show, Tiffany. Thanks for having me again. Well, I know the seasons are changing over. If you're back, you you are, I don't even look for the signs anymore. I just wait to see when I'm going to be interviewing Tiffany on the show. <laughs> the seasons are changing. Uh, let's talk about getting those winter tires ready. What do we need to look for? Absolutely. So when we're wanting to make sure our vehicle's safe for winter, you want to do an overall health check on your tires. Make sure there's no cuts, bulges, anything in the sidewall, and making sure that you have sufficient tread depth to get you through that winter. Transportation Canada recommends a minimum of 530 seconds, which is about four millimeters. So I hear that, and that's just that's just Greek to me. That's just a foreign language. I don't know what you're talking about. So what am I looking for if I walk out to my shed or my garage? Um, what am I looking for on my tires? Is there something that will tell me if they're still good? Absolutely. If you have a tread depth gauge, you can measure it that way. Some brands will have tread life indicators on the center of the tire tread. Some even have a winter snowflake. And then when that snowflake disappears, that tire is no longer good for winter use. And if okay. you're unsure... You can always stop by your local shop and we'll let you know if your tires are safe for another season. Okay, good. So let's talk about tire pressure then. Is that, does that vary? Like, do I need to worry about from what it was, say, in the summer to now? Absolutely. So if you set your tire pressure when your tires went on in the spring, when it was 20, 25 degrees out, what, now that we're experiencing those single digits, you're going to want to have your pressure checked again, especially if you don't have a monitoring system on your vehicle. <laughs> you can do that yourself if you know how to, or you can stop in at any Cal Tire location. You're just going to want to make sure that you're setting your pressures to the pressure that is on the sticker on the inside of your door. Okay. Uh, I know this answer because I have worked with Cal Tire for years and years and years, but let's talk about um, what's, when do we put our, our tires on? Seven degrees is that magical number for the switch. Once we're experiencing temperatures under seven degrees, that's when your winter tires are going to outperform your all-season tires. 
Yeah, and uh, it's definitely, we're hitting those seven degree temperatures, at least in Ontario now. Uh, so w definitely that's a good sign that it's time to switch. What is the difference between all season and winter tires? Winter tires are going to have a compound that stays flexible under seven degrees. And that's the main thing you're looking for for traction throughout those winter months. In the summer, those all season tires are great. They're meant to last long, but because of that, they have a really hard compound. And any tire that does not have the Tri-Peak Mountain Snowflake on it, which is your severe service emblem, is going to, for a Canadian analogy, it's going to turn into a hockey puck on you. That rubber is going to become cold and hard. And that's why it's so important to make sure you have a tire that has that Tri-Peak Mountain Snowflake on it for your winter driving. Yeah, I always think of that that puck analogy now um, because it, that's exactly what it's like. And you see people out there, that first snowstorm sliding all over the road because they're essentially driving on hockey pucks. And for me, I have a new driver um, in the house, fully licensed, go, about to go through her first winter, and I am so stressed. Uh, so it is; those tires are crucial. They're really important um, for everybody. Uh, but for me, when you ask who do you drive safely for, I think of my daughters for sure on those tires. Absolutely. I have the same thing. I have two kids in the back of my vehicle, so I need to make sure that my vehicle is in good health. Okay, um, now there's an all-weather tire as well. So I'd like to just talk about that uh, quickly because there is a difference. It sounds similar all season, all weather, but there is a difference, right? Absolutely. All weathers are meant to be run year-round and they're winter rated. So they have that severe service emblem, which is that Tri-Peak Mountain Snowflake. Tires that are all season or have an M and S designation, which stands for mud and snow, those are not winter rated and they have not passed the testing to receive that severe service emblem. So those compounds will harden under seven degrees. Yeah. So if you don't want to switch your tires every season um, and, you know, you want to tune Tiffany and I out the rest of the year, you could just put all weather on your on your car and you don't have to switch them over. You just have to check the de uh, tire depth, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I, was, I couldn't get that word, tread depth. Yeah, absolutely. They're a low maintenance option. You just worry about rotating them every 10,000 kilometers, which people line up with their oil changes anyways. And then we check the pressures and the tread depth every time it's in anyways. All right. So uh, people want to book their appointment now, I suspect. Absolutely. We are starting to see our schedulers fill up. But booking those appointments are as easy as calling into your local shop or going on to caltire.com to book that appointment. It's a really simple process and it can make sure that you get in when you want to and not when we're when we have availability. All right. So if you're asking who you drive safely for uh, today, then I suggest you get your appointment booked now to get those winter tires on. And Tiffany, thank you so much for joining me. We're going to see you again, I suspect, in the spring. <laughs> Most likely. For women business owners, marketing their business during this pandemic has been difficult to say the least. 
faced with ongoing hurdles, it can be challenging to share a message that may or may not be relevant in a week or even the next day. Jordan Danger Soccer is creative director and fractional CMO at Danger Co. 100% women-owned and 75% women-staffed, Danger Co. provides pop-up marketing teams and on-demand marketing service to small and medium-sized enterprises and startups. Jordan encourages her clients to speak honestly about their setbacks, fears, and limitations, and is joining me today with some tips for women entrepreneurs who are struggling to find their marketing messaging in a volatile market. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Thanks for having me here, Candice. You've been doing this now for 19 months. So do you, have you found a system, a way to navigate the, the craziness of this? I mean, we, we took a kind of a unique route at the start of the pandemic. Um, we, uh, so Danger Co's been around for about 10 years, but I took about two years off and uh, basically closed the books while I was embedded at a startup and took them through their series A and B uh, rounds. And so uh, I decided it was time to head back out and uh, reopen the books right around February 2020. Uh, <laughs> so great timing on my part. Uh, and so our way of managing that situation was I just I realized it was a weird time for everybody. And so for the first three months, we offered all services completely free of charge because the most important thing to me was to A, help the businesses uh, and B, hear what was really going on. And if we only serviced businesses who could still afford help at that point, we weren't going to hear the real story of what was happening. So, you know, in, in basically in exchange for our time and services, uh, businesses gave us the feedback of what was really happening at the ground level. Uh, and we were able to deal with businesses who were in like deep crisis or didn't know what to do next or had really difficult pivot points. Uh, and I think that was the best thing we could have done because after that, everything just kind of sprung to life. Yeah, I mean, talk about baptism by fire. You're starting your own business and you're helping all these other businesses. So what has been the biggest lesson all of this when it comes to to the marketing for these businesses? I mean, um, there's got to be one sort of theme, I'm sure, that you could pick out that they're all sort of struggling with. I'd say overall, the biggest trouble has been people thinking that uh, that they're going to be able to at any point go back to what was previously like business as usual. Um, you know, I really struggling and very nervous for businesses where I see that they haven't, for example, maintained curbside pickup, right? Uh, whereas the big guys have. Uh, and many of us have become quite attached to curbside pickup and like that option for a variety of reasons. Um, so for like, it's a good example of something that was not probably super fun to get rolling, but once it did, relatively easy to maintain uh, and probably should have kept going. So that's my biggest concern is that businesses tr are trying to go back to the way they did things before. If they're not still maintaining the websites that they built to offer e-commerce, for example, uh, or their other main, uh, methods of offering people ways to access service or goods uh, without coming in in person, for example, they're just going to suffer because people have gotten used to it. So there is no business as usual anymore. I think we can say that safely, right? Yeah, I don't think there ever really should have been that approach to things. Uh, realistically, um, you know, you really have to be ready to uh, change what you're doing and grow what you're doing all the time. I learned in the early days, back when I first started 10 years ago, I met with a business coach and he said, Jordan, the most dangerous thing you can say in business is that you have enough clients because I just said that to him. And shortly thereafter, life proved him correct. Um, and so it's been an important lesson for me. And so I think the idea of people saying like, well, it's what worked before and we're happy with the results. Uh, that's always a really concerning sort of like death knell for a business. You say that marketing is not about promotions. What is marketing about to you? 
Yeah. So the way that we really approach marketing is there's a, definitely a promotions aspect and there's lots of ways to do that. And obviously, you know, social uh, ads and uh, pay-per-click and all that stuff like that. That's really complicated. The waters for small and medium enterprise. And realistically, it's often not a place where they can make a lot of impact on a small budget. So, uh, I mean, I don't think any business should focus 100% on promotions, but certainly SMEs need to be really careful. So we really go back to the roots of marketing and we talk about product. We talk about pricing. We talk about promotions. We talk about placement. Uh, and we really get back into talking with all the teams. What's customer experience need? What does the sales team need? Uh, where are the gaps in, in your pricing or your product that you're not filling yet? I mean, somebody who's running a business right now, you know, that's struggling to stay, to keep their doors open, they're, you know, they're being crushed by debt. Um, you know, where would you say, you know, is marketing something you can cut corners on or is that exactly where you should be putting your your effort right now? That's a great question. So if this was last year, I would have said double down on your marketing now. Uh, general rule of thumb is during any sort of economic crisis, the companies that uh, put more fuel into the marketing fire during the crisis are the ones who come out ahead. Uh, so, you know, if you're just putting in now as we're hopefully coming out of this crisis, uh, you're probably even a little bit behind the gate ball. So I would say don't cut back. But we can certainly, uh, you know, work smart, not hard sort of concepts. So, uh, you know, like one of the things that we do at Danger Co. is there's businesses that need, say, a fractional marketer. Um, and that's where we come in and, and offer basically, um, you know, a part-time high-level senior expert. But there's businesses, especially solopreneurs uh, or small shops, that they don't need that and they can't afford it. So what we do instead is we work on a coaching schedule. Uh, and we give them the tools and teach them how to do what they need to do. And we're realistic with them about the things they need to hire out for. Uh, so there's ways to do your marketing, even if you can't uh, double down, say, on the amount of staffing hours put into it um, and still make an impact. Great. Incredible. I want people to be able to find you. You are very active on LinkedIn. I know that. So uh, if you could just share your website and social channels, that'd be great. Yeah. So dangerco.co is our website. Uh, and LinkedIn is where I'm very active. It's always good to check out our blog. Uh, last, or sorry, rather in the spring, we did a uh, executive detox program where we ran that on email for three months, uh, no charge, for example. And we're getting into TikTok now. So uh, you never know what's going to pop up. It's good to keep an eye on me. LinkedIn's a good place to watch for me. All right. Incredible. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you so much. with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. laughter is the best medicine, then we could definitely use a heavy dose of it after the last 19 months. Thankfully, there is now an online school for women to help them hone their comedy skills so they can dole out the funny liberally and often. Comedy Co-op is an online comedy school hatched by comedy professional, professionals Christelle Bartolese, Anne Fenn, and Melody Johnson. Comedy Co-op offers classes for all levels of experience, from comedy-curious beginners who've never been in a comedy class to more experienced students eager to enhance their skills. Joining me now to share more is Christelle. Welcome to the show. Hi, Candice. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. 
Um, was it the pandemic that sort of started this whole journey for you? Myself and my co-creators, uh, Ann Fenn and Melody Johnson, the three of us came up with this. Uh, the, we all met at the Humber uh, College in the program for comedy and writing. Uh, we're all faculty members there. And we taught online last year. So we learned a lot about how to bring what we do best and do it online. Uh, and yeah, we were just looking for a place. We noticed that a lot of our female or female identifying students often felt a little bit more comfortable if they were in classes with just women um, because comedy takes a lot of risk taking. Uh, so we just thought we would start something where it's exclusively for females. So is the online experience that must be must have taken you time to sort of work out the kinks of that, because in comedy, there's a lot of that back and forth, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, for all of us that were doing shows during the pandemic, uh, you know, learning to do shows online was definitely a different thing. But we find for teaching, uh, one of the highlights of what we do is that we are accessible to people from all over the world. So when it is online, you know, we're doing workshops and lectures and stuff like that. So you're not necessarily looking for show performance wise that you need the feedback. Um, but by being online, you know, where we can offer it to anyone. And uh, we all figured it out. We all found a way to develop our courses and um, our skills and find a way to do it online. So give me an example then of how a class might work. You log in and do you listen to a lecture or class and then participate? Uh, yeah. So if you if you sign up for any of our classes right now, we have a whole mix of classes. We're uh, doing Saturdays. Uh, between 1 and 4 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. We have classes in uh, stand-up, introduction to stand-up, uh, improv, there's physical comedy, there's sitcom writing, uh, a whole variety of classes. So you would join the class um, and it depends what it is and really how the instructor wants to facilitate the class. But you're learning comedy skills. This is for the comedy curious beginner as well. And then we'll have some advanced classes. But yeah, you join in the class, you participate, um, and you're sort of learning to take risks and hone new skills. And maybe for those who have never tried comedy before and are interested. And then our lectures are more with special guests. We have uh, people like Robin Duke from Schitt's Creek. She's going to do an afternoon where she just gives a talk about the industry, about her career. And for that, you can just sit and listen and ask questions if you want. I'd like to talk about um, your message of diversity because uh, I think this is really important. So could you share with me? Uh, I mean, I realize the class is women only, but could you share how you are working this for everybody? Yeah, I mean, inclusion is such an important topic right now. So, um, you know, and, and I just want to say that maybe down the road we will start including men, but uh, you know, men have always dominated the comedy industry. So right now it's for uh, women, uh, women identifying or non-binary students. And all of our instructors are a mix as well. So we're looking for uh, diverse instructors um, so that everyone that comes feels comfortable and they feel that they can be seen in the environment. And uh, it really just is for everyone um, other than right now for men. And like I said, we don't mean to exclude them, but uh, we probably will have events and stuff down the road. But like I said, right now, our focus is women because we think it's so important. And uh, right now, women's voices are so important in comedy. All right. So if people want to join then, can they hop in any time? How can they get started with you? Yeah. So um, I'll just let you know, it's, it's called Comedy Coop rather than co-op, right? Um, oh, yeah. No. Because it's attached by women, attached by women. So that's okay. Um, we, don't, we don't have the hype in there, but that's okay. We're, we're new and, and 
um, we're, we're all we're all learning. But uh, yeah, so you go to our website, comedycook.ca. We have all the classes listed there. Um, you just send an email for which class you would like to sign up for, or you can contact us as well. Um, and then our fees are very reasonable for classes, and we've got lots of exciting stuff coming up. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is great, Crystal. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance, and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.